Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because of the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And that will conclude our reading this morning. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And our title is going to come from verse 5, though we'll speak about the whole text if the Lord will help us to do so. Our title is going to come from verse 5 where it says, And hope maketh not ashamed. Or, if we were to translate that into today's language, it would say, never disappoints. So the title of our message today is, God Never Disappoints. God Never Disappoints. Now, we're going to try to look at each verse that we've read today, uh, but perhaps as a um, setting for our thoughts today, Um, I want us to recognize that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're experiencing, whether we're up on the mountain, whether we're in the valley, or whether we're in the journey between the two, that at no part during that does God disappoint despite our emotions that might get disappointed. God never disappoints. Or in other words... God is always doing something in us, to us, or for us, regardless of what the experiences in our journey feel like. And I think we can trust that, not only from this text, but also from the full part of Scripture. So, to give a little background on what Paul is getting for here, anytime we see the word therefore, he's talking about referencing something that came before. And so... What is he referencing in regards to what he's about to say? Well, if we go back to chapter 1, after he gives his introduction to the book of Romans, and he is just beginning the book, he gets into, if you remember in Romans chapter 1, around verse 20 or so to the end of the chapter, he begins to describe all of the sinfulness of what was typically seen as Gentile sin. And so he slowly reveals And as you read the different sins that he lists, it continues to degenerate downward. Finally, when he gets to the place at the end of chapter 1, where he says, not only these people who commit such sins, but they take joy, and I'm summarizing here, they take joy in others who do the same. So he's getting to this end part of wickedness and sin, and he's saying, One of the worst places that a person can become is to know what they are doing is sinful and deserves the judgment of God. And yet when they entice others to participate, knowing that all of them as a group will be be, uh, experiencing God's judgment, they still revel in joy over that. And so what the natural response to the self-righteous religious person would be is to shake their head and just say those horrible sinful people but when he goes into chapter two paul pivots and he says oh you that that judges or oh thou that judgest thou art inexcusable for thou that judgest doest the same thing as those people and so he's really pivoting from the gentiles to the jews And his whole purpose in Romans 1 and 2 is to show all people are guilty of sin and deserve the judgment of God. That as we look to one another and judge ourselves by ourselves and by that try to put some people on a pedestal and put some people down, God does not see that. What he sees is that mankind has fallen in his sins and is in deserving of God's judgment. He comes into Romans chapter 3, verse 1, 
And he begins to tell us that. Then what advantage hath the Jew? Or why was it at that time an advantage to be a Jewish person? And we could put it in modern language and say, why is it an advantage for you if you have been born within a family that teaches the truth and brings you to church? That is certainly an advantage over somebody who is born in a pagan culture serving a God who is not real. So what is that advantage? And he tells them that the advantage for the Jews was that they would get to, uh, they were delivered to them the oracles of God. And so God, God personally gave to them the law and the prophets and their exposure to God and truth was much more than what the Gentile nations were. He talks about how, although he goes in later into chapter three and he reveals, I guess this is chapter two and he reveals that that doesn't mean that Gentiles aren't responsible for, for their sins because in our conscience, the truth is revealed because God has written, written the law upon our conscience, making every man, woman, and child that comes to the age of accountability responsible for their sin. Nonetheless, we ought to be extra grateful because of God's blessing and giving us a clear picture of who he is and what he's done. So if you learn that you're under sin and God's judgment... I think the natural human reaction, and I think world religions for all of history demonstrate this, that then the idea is if I have displeased him, then maybe I can work to please God. And if you look around the world and you look around even within Christian denominations, many of them are solely based upon works salvation. If I'll be good enough and do good enough and say the right things and treat people in a certain way and wear certain clothing and forbid certain things to go on in my home, then maybe when God balances my sins against my righteousness, my righteousness will outweigh it and thus I will go to heaven. And even people today who professed faith-based salvation very often subconsciously don't have the assurance of salvation wrought by the Holy Spirit and so they're unsure and in their unsureness of whether they've been saved or not, they have a backup plan. And that backup plan is, well, if I really didn't get it then, maybe if I live good enough, God will let me into heaven. Oh, if you feel that way, read Romans chapter 3, verse 19, all the way through chapter 4. And what you'll conclude is if you're going to try to get to heaven by your works, you're going you're to burn in hell, frankly. There's no hope. By the works of righteousness, nobody can be justified. Not even the greatest religious people who have ever lived. And that's why in Romans 4, that's who Paul goes to. He goes to Abraham and he says, if Abraham were justified by works, he would have where all to boast. But not before God. Oh, he can boast in other people. But you can't boast before God about your works because God demands perfect obedience. This morning, if you're somebody who, you know, I'm not sure if I've been saved or not, but I'm going to strive to live really good and hope that God will mix the two together, it ain't going to happen. And so he goes on to this expression in chapter 3, verse 19, all the way through chapter 4, and he's trying to prove to the Jew, no works will get you into heaven. And he establishes that point, and it leads to our text in Romans 5, verse 1, where he makes this summary, this declaration that kind of summarizes all of 1 and 4. Or here is the result of everything he has said in, in chapters 1 through chapters 4. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the summary that he has. But here's what I love about the Apostle Paul and his writings. He's, he's so deep and he's such a wonderful writer. I know it's under the inspiration of Scripture, but all, these five verses are just beaming full of richness because you would think after and very often has been the case and we preachers can be guilty of, of overemphasizing one point to the detriment of another point. But what is so beautiful in this Scripture and through the book of Romans is that Paul will make a really strong point, but then he does not neglect to continue to build on the things of that foundation. And so that's what he's doing here in Romans 5.1. He says, we have been justified. For those of you that don't know what that means, if you go to a court of law, and you have been found or, or your, your case is still being heard and then there is a decision that's made and you are innocent because of something that comes out, you could say, I have been justified. I am free from the guilt of the accusation. 
And he, in verse 1, is celebrating this. He's saying, we have been justified by, not my own works, not my own testimony, by faith in Christ. That's it. However, he doesn't stop with the benefits of the Christian life by saying we've just been justified. I've said this before, I'll say it again, as I was growing up. I, I don't think it was intentional whatsoever, but there was such an emphasis upon the benefits of the moment you get saved that I never understood until later in life that there are other benefits of salvation other than escaping hell. But let me tell you, when we limit the benefits of salvation to just, now I don't have to burn for eternity, we greatly distort by underemphasizing the fullness of God's plan what salvation really is. And Paul here is trying to build upon this truth. He says, yes, we have been justified by faith. But then he goes into verse 2 and is as though he is opening the door to all the more blessings that are found in the Christian life. He says this, by whom, so by Jesus in verse 2, also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So when we were lost in our sins, Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and in sins, that we were worthy of God's judgment, that we were, we know that we were worthy to be separated from a holy God and not have communion with him. But now Paul's saying we have been justified in addition to being justified by the eyes of the law in the sight of God. Now we have access to what? I'll, I'll point your attention to the word to stand. Number one, we can Stand in the presence of this God in whom sight we have been justified by. In other words, I have access to God now and to his fellowship and to communion with him. And as we learned in Wednesday night a few weeks ago in John chapter 15 verse 1, I can abide with him. I can have my dwelling place be in the presence of God. Why do I have that right? Because of Jesus. He justified me by his blood. And then in in addition, because of his blood, I can dwell in the presence of God. Now in my mind, what I see is this. Paul is in essence saying, you know, here's one of the benefits of salvation. You go up to the mountain and you're halfway up the mountain and you're justified. You say, this is great. This is so much better than the valley of sin. But it's as though he's saying, you're only a little bit away up the mountain. Keep coming. And so then he goes to the next little plateau of the mountain and he says, come up here and look. Now you also not only have that experience that you can revel in one time, but perpetually, as the Hebrew writers tells us, you can dwell in God's presence That our high priest has gone behind the veil and then he has torn the veil and now we have this access wherein we stand in this grace with God. And so it's almost as the new Christian would say, hold on, you mean not only did God save me and you know the deists believe that God created the world then he just left it alone and, and went over and he doesn't give any attention to the world. And very often the way Christians can live their life is as though God saved us. And then he said, well, now that you've got your fire insurance, good luck. That's not what God has done. God has said, yes, I have saved you. Yes, you have regenerated your spirit and made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. But also, now I want to have an intimate relationship with you for the rest of your life. And you can stand in my presence at any point in your life. You can rejoice knowing this. And that's exactly what he says here. You can rejoice knowing that in the most difficult times of your life, you can come to the almighty God who created you, who knows everything about you, and who alone can grant peace in all circumstances of life. And we get to stand there. You know Our sinful flesh causes us to visit occasionally. But God says, you know, it's just like my mom's house. It doesn't matter. I haven't lived there since I was 18. But guess what? When I get there, I don't knock. I open the door. 
I walk in. I don't ask if I can get something to drink. You know what I do? I help myself. Because that's my home. That's the place where I grew up. That's the place that because of my relationship to her, I have access to the things that are hers. She's given me that special privilege. You don't hold that privilege. I hold that privilege just as like I don't hold the privilege in your parents' home to do that. Well, no lost person has the the privilege to stand in times of turmoil, to stand in times of perplexity, just in the presence of God that he'll endue them with peace from on high, with wisdom from on high. They don't have that same access that we do. And so Paul is telling us, Yes, you were justified, but you go a little bit further and you also have access to stand with me. He uses the word in, 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 chapter, in verse 2, he says this, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I'm going to tell you what I'm pretty sure that it means. I think here's what he's saying. We, have, we can rejoice in hope. What is hope in the Bible? It's a certain expectation. We're expecting this is going to happen or this can't happen. And we're expecting the glory of God. Well, in other words, here's what I think this means. He's saying, now for the rest of your life, you have access to be in the presence of God down here on earth to expect that God will visit you here often. We've experienced times even the last year that I've been here where God visited us. And we could sense his presence with us. And there was a joy in some of you that was bubbling up. Or there's times when you're seeking answers in life from God in prayer. And God through his Holy Spirit comes into your presence. And suddenly everything about that environment is changing. Because God is there. And he's saying in the Christian life. Now you can have the expectation that for the rest of your life. Throughout your life there are going to be times. Where the glory of God is shining around you. And you can enjoy the benefits of his glory on earth. I don't think he's talking about heaven here. I think he's talking about now. Why? Because that's a hope that we have now. I don't have to pray and cross my fingers and say, well, God might just roll the dice and decide when he wants to come bless me with his presence. I have access to be there and God desires to be there and I can know. I can take an assurance. You know, that's, if, if I begin to think about my life from this point forward, And I think of all the potential dangers, all the potential trials and tribulations that I'll face. It would be natural for anybody to get a little bit of anxiety about that. What if you get diagnosed with cancer? Sister Reedy testified this morning about. What if you lose one of your children? What What if... All of these things that you could allow your mind to wander and Satan could use to to govern your mind and to control you in fear. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. So here we have this, this, this word of love that God gives us to say this. The rest of your life, my glory, my presence will be with you. There are times when Brother Moran's here this morning. I think of this teaching the Fairview Memorial Bible Study here in a couple weeks. He called me a few months ago and said, would you teach for that? And I've had all these things going on. I've been making little notes and setting them aside and, 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 and making notes for that. But I haven't really sat down and just gone after it. You know, and the other day I was kind of, it, it dawned on me as somebody said something about the Fairview Memorial Winter Bible Study and being this coming Thursday. And I got a little nervous because I thought, wait, that's not me, right? I'm not supposed to teach uh, this week at it. And then I got to kind of, for just a moment, getting a little worried. Like, I, gotta, I really got to sit down and buckle down and do this. And, and yet the things that I was putting my hand to, they were important. I wasn't neglecting it. It's just I had things that were more pressing and more urgent, things that were coming before that I, I had to put my hand to. I had to put my mind to. And again, this peace came to me that, listen, if I don't do it right now, and I have to do it in a week and start preparing, God will be with me then. Don't worry. And if it's 10 days from now, God will be with you then. God has put your hand to the plow in this area, and then he wants you to plow later in that area. God can be with you in both. There's great hope that we can have knowing that whatever is ahead, the ailments, the infirmities that we will face in this life, God's glory will be with us that are saved. That's a great peace. 
And then he gets into this next part of the scripture. And it's as though he's saying, you know, you're saying that God is with you and you've gone up this little mountain and yeah, that's a blessing. And then you go a little higher up the mountain for another blessing. But look at all these Christians that suffer hardship. That's got to be evidence that God is not being good to you, that you're suffering just like all other people. And this is the brilliance of not only God's word, but of of Paul writing here to, to turn an accusation towards our God to a greater good of our God. He says, not only so. In other words, God's blessings are not only found as you go up the as you go up the mountain of blessings. But we can be sure that not only in those, but in the deepest valley a man will ever be in, God's blessings are found there too. And that's what he's bringing out. How? That's what you might ask, right? If I said that to a person, I said, no, listen, I am going through a hard time. You're right. But that's not evidence of God not liking me. That's not evidence necessarily of God punishing me. It rather might be the most tremendous blessing I have ever had by God doing what he's doing. And Paul is going to flesh out so brilliantly in just three verses how that accusation is flipped on its head and how our tribulations end for our good and God's glory. Look what he says in verse 3. Not only so, so not only the good stuff in the mountains, but we glory in tribulations also. That word glory there. Again, this is just my opinion. I wish they would have used a different word they used in the King James. When Mary, you remember when Mary went to Elizabeth, and, and Elizabeth, she's going to share this, just the most incredible news that anybody's ever shared. The Messiah has been born, or going to be born. And they begin to rejoice with one another. And then you get to this thing called Mary's song, is what a lot of people have labeled it. And she says, I exult in God my Savior. That's a rejoicing behind or beyond mild celebration. It's not just your football team in the Super Bowl scored a touchdown and now you've won the Super Bowl and you're going, yes, that's great. The word there is exult. It's a beyond words, beyond comprehension, rejoicing. And yet the context of that with Mary makes so much sense, right? Because here she has been communicated by the angel Gabriel. You're going to birth the Messiah. And he has come for the salvation of his people for all time. And you are the vessel by which God has chose to bring him into the world and raise him and rear him into adulthood. And she no doubt would be natural in, in endlessly praising God. But here the apostle Paul uses that same word and says, we as Christians exult In our tribulations. I'll say this this morning. It is a sign of Christian maturity when a person cannot be reactive when they experience hardship. The reactive person, all of us have different personalities. Thus, when we hear bad news, when we experience hardship, we all react a little different naturally. Some people get very angry. Some people get depressed. Some people run into anxiety. Some people, all these types of reactions that are natural. And this morning, I want you to see here that a sign of spiritual maturity is not the moment something happens, we just react naturally. But God calms our spirit and we're able to view it for just a split second. God gives us the grace to back away from our natural reaction and our natural emotions. Because what we know is that our God is always good and always purposeful. And so we know that nothing has slipped through his fingers and unintentionally rained upon our parade. We know it's happened all for a reason. And yet we're blind to why. Let me give you a piece of advice. The best thing to do is reserve judgment. Don't. 
and I, I cast no aspersions upon Job because I have no desire to be like him, and he endured his hardships way better than anybody I ever know would have. Nonetheless, don't be like Job and be, when pressed, willing to accuse God of unfairness, of just remain in your silence, if nothing else. Reserve your judgment, God. And there's been many times in my life I've gone to God and said, I don't understand. I don't understand why this is happening. But I always try to follow it up with, but God, I'm trying to trust you. Help me to control every fallen part of my Adamic nature to reserve reaction. Now listen, I fail in that. Quite frequently I fail in that. But God, give me the grace to to hold back. Because what could be the case is what Paul is saying here is that one day there's going to be a point where we, we rejoice that we did that, that we experienced that. How could that be the case? Well, Paul's going to tell us here. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation knowing this. Tribulation worketh patience. Now, I'm, I'm sounding very critical of the King James this morning, and I'm not trying to. But the more I begin to dig in these scriptures, the more I don't feel like it really encompasses the fullness of what's being said here. So I began to look up, what does that word patience mean? Right? There's, a, there's a surface level understanding of this, that you know, if you go through something hard and you have to be patient, it builds more patience in you, and that's a good thing. But I, I don't know, there was just something with the richness of the scripture, I thought, it just can't be that simple. There's got to be more to it than that. So I started digging a little bit with that word patience. What does that mean? And I came to find out it doesn't mean patience. It means something that is a shade different than patience. And that is endurance. That's what it means. There's two different words in the Greek for patience and endurance. And this is endurance. So what is the difference, I began to think of, between patience and endurance? So I went through my little Greek thing and I began to go through the Bible where it talked about endurance. And it just got so beautiful and so rich. Because what I began to notice is this. In patience, what God is calling us to is a toleration of hardships. Keyword toleration. You're gritting your teeth and bearing it. And it's hard. And there's nothing you can do about it. Job was patient. God allowed Satan to rain down upon him all of these hardships. And he was having to, he was having to be patient with those things. I almost said endure. He's having to be patient with those things. But in the Greek, when you use the word endurance through the scriptures, what it's meaning is this. You're trying to accomplish a task, and there are things that are getting in the way. There's hardship coming upon you when you're trying to accomplish the task. And endurance is when you press those through those hardships to continue to accomplish the task. There's an action involved here. And what I found very interesting was that almost every New Testament writer puts an emphasis on endurance through hardship. In other words, it's as though when Jesus was teaching these men himself, when he sat down with John and Peter and James and, the, and, whoever, and Paul even, since he was uh, exposed to Paul there in the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Arabian desert, that it's like he purposely told them, listen, When you're trying to do something for my kingdom and advance it, you're going to be left with tribulation and hardship. The forces of darkness are going to fight against you. But listen, if you'll persevere and endure those hardships, the end of it will be worth all of the light affliction that you experience in the process of passing through. And so it's like each one of them saw Jesus with their own eyes do that. And when they're writing to other Christians, they're saying, Please, when you're fighting the good Christian fight, endure through those things. Don't give up. Here's what he says. I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures to you. Here, Paul is charging Timothy. And he says, preach the word. Be instant, in season, and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they, and they shall turn away from their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. 
So here's what's going on. This older preacher is talking to this young man whom he deeply loves, who he sees has a zeal for the cause of God, who is going out, Timothy is, and he's trying to labor strenuously against great opposition from the outside and from the inside. And here this this older man is saying, go out and preach the word, reprove people, rebuke people, exhort them, teach them, edify them. He's telling them to do all these things and you're going to go to people and they're not going to hear you and you're going to meet resistance. But then he says, watch thou in all things, endure affliction. He's not saying just wait it out. He's saying, keep pressing on, keep going, keep fighting the good fight. Because he follows it up with, do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of your ministry. Action verbs is what he follows it up with. So here's what happens in the Christian life. You're in the midst, and I'm just going to use some, some simple examples here. That something in the church God's burdening you for, and you want to go out and, and motivate. You want to you try to be a, 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 I think of our minister school here, or our school here, or any number of the enterprises that this church is engaged in. And you go out and you start to do it. And Satan realizes it's gaining traction, and it has the potential to help a whole lot of people. And so Satan begins to fight back against it. And because of that, and sometimes that comes from within, or sometimes it comes from without, just as these New Testament men experienced. Sometimes it was people's betrayal from within that became so disheartened and depressing and it blew the, it knocked the wind out of people that all they wanted to do is give up and say, you know what? I'm not going to continue to fight that fight. I'm just going to quit and I'll show everybody because I'm going to quit. And he's saying, endure. If God is in it, endure through it. I've made the mistake before of being all excited about something, all zealous about something, getting a whole bunch of people around it. And then meeting some internal opposition and quitting too early. And I look back at that as a memorial for me. It's a memorial of God. I was young. I didn't understand quite as much as I do now. Help me not to do that again. When your spirit is leading me to do something, and I know you're in it, give me endurance through it. Here, the Hebrew writer says this. These, these people in Hebrews chapter 10 are, he's saying, you know, there was a time in your life where you were a gazing stock before people. Or rather, they ridiculed you. You connected yourself to people who were imprisoned like myself. That's why part of the reason I think Paul wrote Hebrews. I was imprisoned and, and, and you, you helped me and you didn't care that they spoiled your goods. They stole stuff from you and took stuff for you in the name of God. And now he's trying to use their history to encourage them to continue to endure. And he says this. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of, the King James says, patience. But the real word is endurance. To keep going, to keep doing it. That after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Just a chapter and a half later, he says this. He points us, and we preached on this, I don't know, a couple months ago. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 1, wherefore seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience. You know what that word really is? Endurance. It's an action. He's not just tolerating it. He's just not surviving it. He says as a Christian, keep running. Keep going. Don't give up when God is calling you to do something. He talks about looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And in verse 3, he says this, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Jesus, I love this about this. When he calls us to endure, you know, I, had a cross, I ran cross country when I was in high school. I know it doesn't look like it, but I really did. I ran cross country in high school. I wasn't a great cross country runner, but I always laughed when we would go to meets and the coaches of cross country were very large men, right? I always just to myself kind of chuckled at that because I would think if if my cross country coach, which sometimes he would, would say, you know, go run 10 miles and we have to run to some location and run these squares and all these things or run for a certain amount of time. I always did what my coach said for this reason. He ran with us. And about half the team, he was in his mid forties at that point. He would beat half the team. 
And so even if you were better than him, you respected him. Because he was calling you to do something really hard that required a great deal of endurance. He, ex- he experienced dry mouth and, 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 and cramps in his legs. He experienced hardship probably because of his age more than the rest of us. And yet he endured. And you know what I did? I gladly, I won't say gladly, at times I didn't gladly. I always took his instructions and followed it. Because I thought he knows what he's talking about. I look at these other coaches who had never done it and think, do you know what it's like when you're in mile seven or eight and your legs start cramping up, you don't have any wind and you need a drink? You can yell all day long, but you don't know what it's like. You know, that's one of the things I love about Jesus. If we're thinking of a race, Jesus is sometimes calling us to run a marathon when he's ran around the world as many times as you could ever count. And so the type of endurance he is calling us to is so short of what was required of him. So it ought to do us, make us glad that Jesus says, I found joy knowing the end. I got to thinking about that this week. The experimental side of finding joy in tribulation. I got to thinking, you know, what is the natural comparison to that? Like, when is there a moment that we experience where we're under duress or something, we're struggling really bad, but inside we experience joy? And I had to think a little while about it. But there were a couple examples that came to my mind. Number one, when you're dieting. You ever be dieting and you go to a birthday party and there's all these food that you love and, you want to, and you're feeling very tempted to do it, but you don't? You stay your hand from it? And there, the emotions begin to pass of what you want. And in your mind, there's this, I don't want to say an excitement, but a satisfaction knowing you did not fall to that temptation because you're going to accomplish the goal that you set out to do a long time ago. I thought of the analogy of running. I remember I had a coach in the eighth grade in basketball, and he was tough. He was really tough. And I remember he would make us run and run and run and run. And at first, we didn't like him at all. He was very big change from the previous guy we'd had. But, I mean, he would just make us run. Sometimes we'd go outside and do sprints, every sort of thing he'd make us do. And then I remember we were in a heated game one time, and he talked about motivating us. We were in this real heated game, and it was real close. And it was the fourth quarter. And he said, look over there. And he pointed to all the other players on the other team. You know what they were doing? They were exhausted. He looked at us. He said, how do you feel? All of us felt really good. Because you know what? This was easier than what practice was. And he said, you guys right now are stronger and you're faster and you're better than what they are. Now go show it. You talk about motivation. And it was something where then afterward, when we would run in practice... I found this strange satisfaction with punishing myself that way. Because I thought there's going to come a day where what's happening right now will be very useful. A moment where hardship, trial, tribulation, you find joy in it. That doesn't mean you're just happy. But you find joy in it. I could go on another example with Peter, but I'm not going to do so. The point being in this particular case I wanted to show you is that tribulation works endurance. Now, because I've gone through these hardships, because I've gone through the practice, now when I'm in the race and things require endurance to press on, now I have that. Then he goes on to the next thing. Endurance or patience worketh experience is what he says. Again, King James here doesn't quite translate in modern language. Here's what he means, character. Character is what he means. When you press through hardship, perpetual hardship, and you have to experience all the mind-numbing questions of how do I respond to this person? How I ought to treat these people? How should I act in this situation? How are we to go about that? And you pray to God about it and you seek counsel and you go through the hardships of, of withholding your tongue and not responding in an evil, natural way or not doing the things you're accustomed to doing and you... You're going through this and you're enduring as a Christian does. 
and you get to the other side of this hardship, you are different. You're different. Just as a person who practices running 10 miles a day, their ability, their person, their body is physically different than what it was weeks ago. And because it's different, it can do different things. When we endure these things, in the process of enduring this hardship, God is molding our character to be more like his. He's shaving off those things that we don't need. The us in us. He's crucifying that in Galatians 2.20 as we quoted just last week. He's crucifying that. And now it's not us that's doing as much shining and governing and decision making. But our character is now fashioned more after his. Don't you realize that the goal of the Christian life for God is to make you like him? That's what he's trying to do in you. Sanctify you. Change you into his image. You know, one of the amazing things is that God knows the vulnerable parts of who we are. And he applies pressure to those vulnerable parts of our character. Or in other words, this. The tribulations that he often sends you in order to shape your character are the ones you're weakest towards. You're somebody who lacks patience with people, patience with your husband, patience with your children, patience with your friends, your employer, your employees. And you say, it just seems like all the time, my, everybody else's kids are ruly and mine aren't. What if God is using that to shape your character? What if that's what God's doing in you? And God knows that that young child is going to mature but their immaturity is by God's doing. And that what he is trying to cause you to do is grow in him. Nothing like that for the moment is pleasant. But the Bible says it works the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God may be trying to do that. And you, he knows the pressure points of your heart and of your will and of your life. And he may be purposely causing you to endure in those areas to shape your character. And then he gets to the end, he says, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. What does that have to do with? I think think this is what he's saying. And you can can read it for yourself and see if if I'm right. I, I think this is what he's meaning here. He's saying, now this. I've endured the hardships It's created character in me. With my new character more like Christ, I am more slanted towards trusting in God's promises and hoping in his promises and believing them because I have seen them worked out in my life. I have seen tribulation work endurance in me. Now that I have seen the fruit of it, I've experienced it, I've come through it, and I see God's hand in all the things that I've gone through Now, I want to go through more things God has for me. Hope does not disappoint, is what it should say. So now, I'm trusting God. So you go through, now a new tribulation comes your way. And instead of doing what the the immature Christian does, or what our fallen nature helps us to do so often, we fall into reactive mode. Instead of doing that, We stop and we say, you know what? All the times in the past, God has come through. He has worked in us and made us, as we have come through this, more like him. And now I'm facing another trial. And I don't want to face it. But I have a hope, knowing that God is not going to disappoint me in what he works through it. I know it is for my good. You ever see somebody go through something unutterably hard with unspeakable integrity? I've, I've shared this with you before, but it comes to my mind that the lady that uh, the church I was just a member at, at Friendship, she was diagnosed with cancer and I mean, her body just, 
I felt like every week she would come in, she was just a little more gray, a little more frail, a little more beaten, you know, physically beaten down. But let me tell you this, she shone. And in the same breath, week after week, she got brighter and brighter and brighter with the glory of God. I've said before, I said at her funeral, her death impacted me more than my own dad's because of the way she died. I had never, ever in my life witnessed somebody whose body was deteriorating rapidly and whose spirit was rising and rising and shining and shining and shining and shining. How could she do that? How? How was it that she in those, those times could do that? I'll tell you how. She had hope that God was doing it for a greater reason than she could understand. And she believed in his promise, as it said about Abraham, who against hope, believed in hope. He believed it. I, my, my, uh, my offspring is going to inherit this promised land, even though not a foot that I'm stepping on, not a, a foot of my ground, or that little area that I'm stepping on, I own when I die. But I know because of God's promises, Abraham walked around as though it had already taken place. You know, that's whenever you see somebody great in faith. It's somebody who is so confident in the, in the promises of God that they speak of it, they act as though it has already happened. You know an example of that in the Bible? Go to Second Chronicles, I believe it's chapter 20, 19 or 20, and it's Jehoshaphat's army. You know, one of the things, and I don't know this is true, this is what historians say, that Jehoshaphat's army was actually bigger than the enemy's army. But you know what he did when he heard they were attacking? He fell upon his knees and begged God for help. And God said, none of you are going to die. I haven't read that story in a while, so please forgive me if I misquote some of the examples here. But he says, you know, none of your soldiers are going to die. You're not going to lift a finger. Put, put the men of trumpet and the singers in the front. And have them blow the trumpet and have them sing. You know what Jehoshaphat did? That's exactly what he did. He believed so strongly. You know who you put in the front? Your toughest guys in a normal battle. You know what Jehoshaphat did? He put the singers up front. Oh, and they began to blow those trumpets and they began to sing. And as they saw that that army they were fighting against, that army was killing each other because God had brought a confusion. God defeated them. Somebody of great faith is somebody who has been assured of the promises of God and lives in their attitude and in their actions as though what God has promised has already occurred. I'm not there yet. Many of us are not there yet. But don't you want to get there? Like, isn't there a part of you that wants to live in fellowship with God to the extent that these men and women who went through these hardships and these tribulations that are almost unspeakable, yet through it all, those three Hebrew children look at that king and say, it matters not to us if you cast us in the fire or we don't. We're just here for God. And if he says that we're to burn in the fire, we're going to burn in the fire. What about Daniel casting the lion's den? I've always wondered what that was physically like. Like the first few moments you get down in the lion's den, what's that like? As somebody who has ultimate faith in God, you know, I've always laughingly thought to myself, I wonder if he went over and petted him, <laughs> you know, all the pictures of him hiding in a corner. What if it wasn't that way? What if he just had no fear whatsoever? He's, this is God's domain, not these lines domain, right? Here, God never disappoints. And then he concludes with this, and I'm done. Why? Why do we know these things? How do we know these things? How can we be confident to live in this way? Here's how. Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Ghost. You ever had those times where, and this is, this is, this is completely the Lord, where you're, you're experiencing a hardship, you're experiencing a tribulation, and for whatever reason, your natural reaction beyond your own capabilities, is restrained. For some reason, you don't know why when you look back, but for some reason, God has restrained your natural reaction. And he's caused you 
for just a moment to see it as God. And those things that would always bother you, you know, you're saying this would always get, get under my skin and bother me. But for whatever reason, I don't know why, in that moment, it just didn't. And I felt God's presence and I communed with him. And I actually did what was the opposite of my natural reaction. And that is, I found joy in God and in him being with me in those moments. That's a wonderful experience for a Christian to have. God wants us to have that. You know why we can take confidence in this? The title of the message this morning, God never disappoints you. He will never disappoint you. So no matter what part of the process you're on in your life, I want you to know God will never disappoint you. What an appeal to be a Christian as well. I mean, isn't it a wonderful thing? As you grow up into adulthood, you might have the most wonderful parents you ever had. But listen to me today. If they've never disappointed you yet, they're going to, and they're likely going to do it in a major way at some point. There's going to be some kind of attitude. There's going to be some, something come out where it's just disappointing to you. And it hurts. Oh, as I scour the scriptures, as I look into people's lives at what God is doing, and I see his handiwork, I am never disappointed. Rather, I am always amazed at how good he truly is. I give that commendation to nobody else but God alone. If you don't know him today, you can. He'll never disappoint you. You know, Oftentimes, here's the way it works. We're disappointed in God for something that's going on in our life. And we get to the end of that something. And we realize that the whole time God was doing something, we just couldn't see it. And you know who you become disappointed at at that time? Yourself. Because you say, the whole time, I was suffering, I was hurting. And I was blaming God. And now, I see That I was the problem. Anytime as a Christian, as a lost person, you're blaming God for anything. And you're disappointed in him. I will assure you that when you see things more clearly. When God reveals to you the truth. Or sometimes it's that we just have incomplete information. We've seen a part of the truth, but he hasn't revealed the whole story. And then when he does... You say, what a fool that I was. That's what Job did. He got to the end of his book after he hid that communion with God and God had showed him, I'm not the one being unjust here. You're the one being foolish in your accusations. Job, what was I thinking? Who did I think that I was? And it's as though all of his senses, spiritual senses came back to him this morning. I didn't even get close to touching the richness of this scripture. Listen, there's more than just being justified by faith. Even in our tribulations, even when the person says, look at how bad you're suffering, your God's no good. Even in that, we know that God is working something so much greater with us and in us. Maybe even more so there than on the mountaintop. I love that about the Lord. I love that Paul teaches us this here. And it's such a comfort to know we can always hope in his promises and never be disappointed. That's our message this morning. I pray God would use it for somebody here that may be enduring or called to endure something that's ahead. That you would look back to these scriptures and have hope.